The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Good. Braden, thanks for playing along this morning. I expect to see you in the next three weeks. Uh, your participation was greatly appreciated. You know, I'm going to be first in line for John's first CD when he cuts that CD. I don't know. Do they even make CDs anymore? I'm going to be first in line for whatever they make now. That was beautiful. I, I remember uh, Jonathan, John, uh, when he was in high school, and uh, we grew up in church together. I was a little older than him. And every time he came up and did a sale, I was like, man, God has given that man a voice. But he doesn't hardly ever get up here and, and doesn't like the microphone. So we're going to have to encourage him to use his gifts for the Lord. But uh, that was incredible. Um, it is a great reminder that we're uh, serving the Lord. We exist to glorify God, and Christmas is all about Jesus. And then today we're talking about a strange topic, which is not Christmassy, but it's because we're working through the book of Corinthians. So turn in your Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 13. Uh, the people in Corinth were learning what it meant to follow Jesus. As the, the subtitle says, um, 1 Corinthians is about seeing every part of life through the gospel lens. And so all these random topics have been covered, and we're studying what Paul's letter is in response to them and the different questions they're asking. This week we're looking at the issue of how do we relate to one another when we're in different places, have different understandings, different consciences, about what we are free in Christ to do or not to do. We're going to see that, imagine you lived in Corinth, and you went to your mailbox. I'm sure they had a mail delivery that dropped into the mailbox. You went to your mailbox in Corinth, and you say, oh, my word, to your spouse, there's another invitation this week. Let's see who it is this week. And it's, here's what it said, and this is, they found 13 examples of invitations from the day of Corinth. And here is a literal invitation that you might receive in the mail. The request of your company at the table of the Lord Serapis at the Serapium tomorrow, the 15th, at 9 o'clock, where the first birthday of a daughter is to be celebrated at a meal in the Serapium. So another birthday party invitation, right? But for some reason this time when you read this invitation, it just doesn't sit right with you. You're thinking, I don't know. I mean, we've gone to so many of these, but for some reason now, I'm not feeling comfortable about this. Well, let me help get into the mind of the reader of why someone might feel a little uncomfortable about going to a birthday party at the Serapium that they've gone to so many times. Going to the Serapium was like going to a restaurant for us. It was just a part of everyday life, going to the restaurant, and there was so much that you just take for granted, but the, the Serapium was actually a temple to a, foreign, to, a, to a false god. It was a temple to the god that was celebrated in that precinct by the cult of idol worshipers. In this case, the god was Serapis. And so the Lord Serapis was the, the, the false god, and the Serapium was the temple of that false god. But the problem is, it became the commonplace for everyday social activity. You were always get inviting to, invited to go to the temple, and it really wasn't for most people about the temple or about the false gods. It was just the commonplace where social activity took place. And so now, as someone who has decided 
has had their eyes open to see that Jesus Christ is the one true God, when they read this invitation, it just doesn't sit well with them. So let me read the invitation again with the understanding that Serapis is a false god and the Serapium is the temple of the false god. And you read it as the new believer, the request of your company at the table of the Lord, Serapis, at the Serapium tomorrow, the 15th at 9 o'clock, where the first birthday of a daughter is to be celebrated at a meal in the temple, the Serapium. And you say, and you talk to your spouse, you're like, I just don't feel comfortable with this. I, I, don't, I don't think I can go. And the reality of following Christ starts to set in on you because you realize everything happens at the Serapium. And if I choose not to go, I'm not going to fit in. Life is going to be different now. I'm starting to grasp the fact that following Christ changes or affects the coloring or the decision of every aspect of my life. And about that time, you get a phone call from a friend. Hey, did you get the invitation? Yeah. Are you coming? I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I'm just not comfortable. What do you mean you're not comfortable? Well, I mean, I'm just starting to realize now that I'm a follower of Christ, now that I'm in your church, we don't believe in those false gods. Well, that's right, but you need to realize they're not real gods. It's not a big deal. We're free in Christ. Come on. It's okay. In fact, I think you need to go. This will be good for your walk because you need to understand that you are free in Christ. Come on, you're going to that party. I'm not taking no for an answer. And you hang up the, the phone and there's just something not right. That gives you an idea of what Paul is addressing in the, the issue that's going on at Corinth. The best illustration I could come up with and there are lots of illustrations of what our modern-day version of this struggle is. And I've thought about alcohol, and, then, and that's obviously one, or, or the different social issues. But I think the one that has this most one-to-one -one parallel of a social event that is, to some people, not a big deal. To other people, is a big deal. And there's, for some people, it used to be a, a, a religious undertones. And for other people, it's nothing, and it's Mardi Gras. Because of the parallels, if you think about a person who grew up in New Orleans, let's think about that. A person who grew up in New Orleans in the dark underbelly and was a part of voodoo, the occult, the dark spiritual voodoo. And to them, Mardi Gras was a form of worshiping all that was evil. It was a time to just let go and embrace Satan. And then they got saved. And then... They start to view Mardi Gras radically different. It's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. And in their heart, they can't go to Mardi Gras and it just be a parade. That it's just fun catching of beads. To them, there are religious undertones and connotations that make them very uncomfortable with it. And their conscience does not allow them to go to that because they just can't feel good about it. And then a friend calls and says, dude, we're going to Mardi Gras. And they're like, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not feeling it. And the friend's not okay with that because the friend says, no, that's not what it's about. For us, we're just going to have a fun time 
fellowship, we're going to grill, and it's good times. And they start to persuade them and to put influence on them to actually go to the parade despite their conscience that does not want them to go. Paul says, that's not what we want going on in the church. So Paul's going to help us understand how do we treat each other when we're not in the same place. Let's ask the Lord to help us this morning. Lord, we ask for your help as we think about how we should treat each other. Lord, would you teach us to deal with each other the way that you would have us, that we may be faithful, that this church may be a faithful ray of your, your glory and of your love. Lord, teach us how to be faithful when we're not in the same place regarding our freedoms in Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Paul's going, to give us, Paul's going to give us three ways to deal with each other when we're not in the same place regarding freedoms that we have in Christ. The first way, he says, is with love. With love. Look at verses 1 through 3. He says, now, concerning food offered to idols. And notice he's writing a letter concerning food offers to idols. Concerning this issue that you have brought up to my attention in the letter you, that they wrote Paul, he says, we, Paul included, we know that, quote, all of us possess knowledge, end quote. And then he says, this, quote, knowledge, end quote, puffs up, but love builds up. And then he explains, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So let's stop there and think about it. Paul is saying when we deal with each other in different places of our understandings of what we're free to, what we're free to do in Christ, first we need to deal with each other with love. And he's responding to their letter, he says, now concerning food sacrifice to idols. Now that topic is actually brought up several times in the next several chapters. And as I studied it, we see there's a separation of the issues. There's one that we see today which has more to do with the place of the temple which they are being fed these food sacrificed to idols. And then later, there's the more the issue of the food itself, like if it's sold in the marketplace. Paul's going to say if it's sold in the marketplace, it's fine, don't worry about it. But here it seems to be tied more particularly to this idea of going to the temple and participating in this whole scene of eating the food and, and, at, at these parties, if you will. Now, what was going on at these parties? Well, there was, there's these three situations that dealt with the food. First of all, they had the, the formal uh, preparation of the meal. And then there was the sacrifice proper of the food to the false gods. And then the, there was the feast. They would burn the food before the god Serapis. Some would be apportioned to the worshipers, but the rest would be placed on the table of the gods or the table of the god Serapis for all to feast upon. And so that's more the situation. That's why I went with the illustration I went with because it's more the situation, the scene, the context in which it was taking place that Paul is particularly addressing in this passage. Later, he's going to deal with the food itself. But what he's saying here is now concerning the food offered to idols in those temples, he says, we do know this fact. All of us possess this knowledge. 
He says, we're all in agreement on that. Paul would align with them. You've got right thinking on this, that food, sacrifice to idols, though they're false gods. We'll see in just a minute. They're false gods. They're not real gods. It's not a big deal because of that. You're right. They're not real gods. And the writers of the letters were, were hoping that Paul would then say, yeah, so tell them who don't feel comfortable, tell them to get over it and to express their freedoms in Christ. And Paul says the exact opposite. He says, you're right, but you've got a problem. Your knowledge has puffed you up. Ten times the word know or knowledge is used in this passage. And the word knowledge is simply the comprehending or the grasping of truth. He says, apparently they were saying, we want to build them up in the faith and bring them to these temples and show them it's okay. And Paul says, no, your knowledge has puffed you up, have puffed you up. Your knowledge is making you arrogant. You are more concerned about displaying how right you are than what is good for them. And so don't be arrogant. He says, this knowledge puffs up, but instead, love builds up. And so what Paul is saying is the, the, the basis of our interaction with each other in the church as it relates to different positions on different matters that may be clear in Scripture, the basis of our relationship and our operating with each other is love, not knowledge. It's not all about being right. Paul's saying, listen, I don't call you to be the truth cop dropping around truth bombs on people's head and blowing them up. That's not the goal here. The goal is to be loving and building each other up in what the Word of God says. In fact, he says, you want to know what it's like to truly know God Look what he says in verse 2. If anyone imagines he knows something, listen, you think you know something? You think you've got this doctrine figured out? You think you've got the corner on truth? You don't know anything. You don't know half of what you ought to know. You think you know something? You compare yourself to God and you don't know anything is what he's saying. He does not yet know as he ought to know. How ought he to know? Verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. He says, you think in, in the Greek society, knowledge was supreme. It was elevated to the highest, highest order. That if you had knowledge, then you have arrived. And if you have supreme knowledge, you know God, and you are better than all the others in the church. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works in the church. Paul says, if you truly have knowledge of God, you will know the love of God. And if you have the love of God, then you will be building up Others in the faith. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he's saying in the church, we need to know this. The church is not all about we got it right and everyone else has it wrong. The leaders of this church are not leaders because they got the most right on the exam. That's not what it means to be mature in the faith. For Paul, for the scriptures, to be mature in the faith is to display the love of Christ. And there's two kinds of churches, unfortunately, who take the word of God seriously. There's some that are right, and they are cold, and there is no love. And that scares me to death. 
We need to hear this message as Norris Ferry Church. We desperately need to hear this message. Why do you say that? I say that because when we started this church, we had the opportunity to start from scratch. Everything was off the table and just said, or everything was on the table. We started from scratch and said, what do you want? How should we create this church? And we said, let's be very, very careful to make sure that what we do is faithful to the scriptures. And we are passionate about the Bible and getting things right and being faithful and trying to do what we see the scriptures tell us to do, even if it's not the most popular thing to do. That makes us extraordinarily vulnerable to this warning. Knowledge puffs up. And so it scares me that we never become that cold-hearted, legalistic, judgmental, unloving, doctrinally prideful church. In fact, the staff laughs at me and gives me a little grief. They say in connection group, they've noticed something about me that I, I didn't realize myself, but I just did it subconsciously. And they said, you ever notice that when Tracy encounters someone who is very convicted that they have things figured out and like maybe they're just staunch Calvinists and they think that Norris Ferry is going to agree with them, Tracy all of a sudden starts getting very Arminius on them. Or, or if if someone comes in and they're very Arminius and all of a sudden Tracy starts getting more Calvinistic on them. Or they think, man, we got this figured out and we're so glad Norris Ferry is just like us. All of a sudden I start pointing out how many ways we probably disagree with them. Now why is that? It's not because I don't want them to join. It's because I don't want them to join if they can't be in a church where not everybody agrees. Because the sign of God's presence is not we got it all figured out we're right and we're smarter the sign of God's presence here is the love of Christ and that's what we want to display here is the love of Christ so Lord help us to be that way so what about you personally because the us is a collection of individuals are you so proud that you've got it figured out that it arrogantly puffs you up and then you start pointing to everyone else about how they need to get right and figure it out and understand it, and you start to persuade them to see it the way that you see it, and you think that is the goal, of, that the goal is uniformity. The goal is not uniformity. The goal is unity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So may we not be pridefully, arrogantly puffed up. May we humbly build each other up in love when we see each other in different places on different matters. So not only should we treat each other with love, but we see in verse 4 that we should also treat each other with truth. You see, those two aren't in opposition to each other. Verse 4, therefore, so Paul starts to give them the truth about the situation. Therefore, as to eating of food offered to idols, we know that, quote, an idol has no real existence. That's what they wrote to him. He going, that's right. That's right. Idols aren't real. And we also know the truth that, quote, there is no God but one. So he's affirming their truth statements. He says in verse 5, For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many, many, quote-unquote, gods and many, quote-unquote, lords according to the world, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, 
Yet for us, the truth is, there is only one God. God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, and his name is Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Stop there. So in those verses, Paul is very clearly affirming with with one of the greatest texts on the divinity of Jesus Christ. He's not mushy on this. He's not gray on it. He's very clear. There is one God, creator of all things, for whom and through whom all things exist. And his name is Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, for whom and through whom we exist. So to say that we treat each other with love to maintain unity does not mean that we're fuzzy on the facts. Liberal theologians and liberal churches have made this tragic mistake to say, well, let's not stand for anything that might offend, and that way everyone will be happy, and they call that love. And that's not faithful. Paul is saying, yes, stand for the truth. Stand for what the scripture says. Be very clear on the word of God. Build your life on the word of God. There is one God There is one man through whom salvation has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we don't compromise that truth. That's not the problem. The problem is we fail to see verse 7 where he says, However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, now listen to this. This is, think about a Christian in the church, a new believer who comes from a different experience, a different background, a different path than you have taken. He says, some do not possess this knowledge about these idols that aren't real. He says, but some through former association with idols because of their background at those temples with those idols, they eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, Paul says, being weak on this matter, their conscience is defiled. They're not comfortable with this. Even though the truth is, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're no worse off if we do not eat it and no better off if we do. So Paul is saying the truth matters. And we want to hold to the truth. We want to speak the truth. We want to teach the truth. We want to build each other up in the truth. But we must understand we speak the truth with love. We speak to the truth with understanding that not everybody is in the same place of understanding the truth. Not everybody is in the same place of being comfortable with the freedoms that the truths give. And Paul is saying, it is more important that you are kind and gracious and compassionate and patient as you deal with people who may even not have a full grasp of what is clearly taught in the scriptures. If you have to choose between right and love, choose love every time, is what Paul's saying. So to say that we should treat each other with love does not mean we don't wrestle with the truth of God's word. If you encounter someone who doesn't understand the freedoms in Christ, doesn't understand the one truth of God and his son Jesus Christ, doesn't understand the implications of that, maybe it's hung up on legalism or hung up on something else, your attitude should be let's lovingly study the scriptures together. Let's search the scriptures and see what those scriptures say. 
and they say, okay, I see you, but I still have a hard time with it. That's okay. Let's walk together as we learn how to live out the scriptures. We should not say, you need to get over it. Pressure them into doing something against their conscience, and you need to see what you really are free in Christ to do. Because of the weak conscience. Paul describes this as a weak conscience in verse 7. He says, there are some in the church who do not possess this knowledge due to their former association with the idols. Their conscience is weak. What does it mean to have a weak conscience? It means to not be able to act in good faith. Each one, Paul uh, writes also in Romans chapter 14, which talks about a similar subject. In 14.5, Romans 14.5, Paul says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And then down in verse 23, 14, 23 of Romans. But whoever doubts, whoever has doubts, is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And listen to this. Listen to this. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. That is so interesting. Think about that. So he's affirmed two things here. Number one, you're right. You can eat. The idols aren't real. Enjoy the filet. Cooked medium rare. No problem. Even if it had been sacrificed to idols. If you're good with that, that's fine. But at the same time, for someone else who came from a different background, that may be an egregious sin for them to eat. We don't like that. We want clean cut Put it in straight lines and don't let there be any disagreement here. Paul says, no, there is. It might be sin for you when it's not sin for you. And you better be careful that if it's not sin for you, that you don't cause them to do something that is sin to them. Because that's more important than you just exercising your rights, your freedom in Christ. In my own life, I was raised and I grew up in a, in a certain way of viewing alcohol that it was forbidden, not just as a child. That's clear. Everyone who's of underage, no matter what I say today about alcohol, it is illegal, it is sin. Now, referring to adults, I was raised that it still was sin to partake at all. I wasn't comfortable with it. That's where I was raised. That's the way I felt about it. And then... I began a journey of my view of that starting to change. But there was this time in my life as an adult that some friends of ours moved off and saw the world and then came back and where they used to be like us came back very different. They had been enlightened on the topic. And things were much different. Now, they were very gracious. They did not do what I felt. But because of where I was, I felt that what they thought and what others thought was poor, ignorant Tracy hasn't seen the world and has not been enlightened about the topic. And so I was in a much different place than them. I was comfortable. I didn't have a problem with other people drinking if they felt comfortable, but I was not comfortable with drinking alcohol as an adult, even in moderation. I said, well... And, and other people, that's fine, as long as it's in moderation. The scripture says that. Use wisdom, be careful, do not abuse it. But for me, I wasn't comfortable with it. Now, if my friends, which they didn't do this to their credit, if they had said, come on, bro, 
You got to get with the scriptures. You are free in Christ. Come on. Here's a beer. Drink it. You need to see the light. You need to be enlightened like we have. That would have been sinful. That would have been unloving. That would have been wrong to me. I was the weaker brother in that situation. I did not have a conscience that would allow me to do that. And what love says in that situation is they should put their self in my shoes and understand I'm not comfortable with it. Then they would realize how devastating alcohol had been in my family and why I was taught that it is terrible, it is evil, it is the work of the devil. Whether there's permission and moderation or not, I was not comfortable and they should be understanding of that. And they were. And that's the truth. That's the way we should be, whatever the issue may be. In our culture, there's this, there's this legalistic mentality that many of us have been raised on that does go farther than scriptures that says you shouldn't do this. And, and, the, and our denomination is known for what do we stand for? Don't drink, don't smoke, and don't do things. Right? And everybody else is going, that's not the scriptures. But what do you do when we all thrown into a pot and mixed up together in this church? And you're in community group. And you start to get to know each other. And one person says, let's go or let's have a Christmas party and let's have this and let's do this. And other person's going, I'm not comfortable with that. What do you do? Oh, get over it. No, love says no problem. And let's look at the scriptures if we want to grow in this. We want to study it together. But love says, I'm not going to persuade you to do something against your, com your conscience. Not everybody is in the same place. So we treat each other with love. We treat each other with the truth. And finally, we treat each other with care. As we build each other up in the truth, we take great care not to be a stumbling block. Look at verse 9. Take care that this right of yours, this right of yours, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Take care. That, that word puts the responsibility on the one who is comfortable using their freedoms. They're comfortable with it. But it's the, the word take care is to be watchful, to be aware, to be on the lookout for. So what that says is the person who says, I'm free in Christ, has the responsibility to be on the lookout for, am I offending someone else? Am I causing them to stumble? They don't have the freedom, Paul says, to say, hey, I'm free in Christ. That's your problem. I'm going to do what I want to do. You just need to figure it out. No, that's not loving. Paul says, take upon yourself the responsibility to be considerate, to be loving of others. Don't be a stumbling block. Don't become a stumbling block for the weak. Verse 10 describes what a stumbling block is. He says, for if anyone sees you, you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat the food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. A brother for whom Christ died. 
To be a stumbling block means to encourage someone else to act against their own conscience. Paul is saying that even though the gods are not real, the believer was still not comfortable because of their background, because of their previous experiences, because of their upbringing, because of where they are in Christ. For whatever reason, though the gods aren't real, they're not comfortable going to those temples and eating the food at the feast of the table of the gods. He says, if you go and you do it in such a way that it causes them to come and they stumble, you can lead to their destruction. Now, this is easy to see when we're dealing with people with addictions, right? Someone who's stumbling or is trying to avoid alcohol because they've had problems, that's the clear, easiest one to see. Do you love that person enough before you say, oh, man, have a beer? Do you love them enough to think, where are they coming from? But it's not just addictions. It's also spiritual maturity. It's also just spiritual growth and development. Are you encouraging someone towards, hey, man, glory and your freedoms in Christ? Or are you encouraging them to glory in Jesus Christ? To glory in the freedoms of Christ. Come on, let's go. You've got to be wise in what you're encouraging others to do. It's not just a matter of addictions. It's a matter of what is promoting godliness in their life. What's great for you is what you're fine with may not be where some newer person in the faith is comfortable with. Are you considering where they are? Do not cause others to stumble. Do not cause others to lead them back into a sinful way of life. In our Mardi Gras example of that person who grew up in Satan worship, for you to say, let's go to the parade, they don't have an addiction to the parade, but you're leading them back into a whole way of life which God has saved them out of. And, and, and Paul is saying, just because it's okay with you doesn't mean you should do that with them. That may lead to their destruction, leading them back into the old sinful way of life. And Paul says this. This is absolute sin. Verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers, wounding their conscience when it's weak, and doing that, you sin against Christ himself because he's a part of the body of Christ. It's that serious. So what do we do? Verse 13. Paul tells us what he did. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. This doesn't mean Paul was a vegetarian. This means that Paul, if he knew a brother would stumble by eating the meat sacrificed to idols, he said, I will sacrifice that freedom gladly for the good of my brother or sister in Christ. Are you willing to sacrifice your freedoms, freedoms you enjoy to the glory of God for the sake of a brother or sister in Christ? If not, then we need to think about our knowledge about God. The gospel is this, that God, who had all the freedoms, all the authority to use his freedoms, he sacrificed his freedoms, taking on the form of a man entering into our worlds to die on the cross for our sin, to give us his righteousness that we might mature and be made right with God. 
If that's who you know and that's who you're following, then your life surely should say, I have freedoms in Christ, but I will sacrifice them for the benefit of the others in the church for their good. So very briefly, three things that practically this means. Number one, what does this mean? Number one, do not pressure others to do something their conscience does not give them freedom to do. Ever, ever, ever. There is no glory in pressuring someone else to do something they're not comforting, they're not comfortable doing. Number two, be very careful where you go and what you do as a believer. Keeping in mind your, uh, your actions affect others. It's kind of like we told our kids growing up. Now, it's a little different because they were underage, and so it's cut and, it's cut and dry, black and white. That is wrong. That is sinful. It's illegal. But then you go, okay, they have a life. They have a social life. They have friends. How do you make these decisions? And here's what we told them. There's two kinds of parties. There's one party that you show up to, and there's been some sinful stuff going on the edges, on the outskirts, maybe out in the trees, behind the house where the party is, and they come in, and you sense something's up. That happens all the time. Parents, if you don't know that, that's what's going on all the time. And they show up to the party, and they're going, oops, okay, this isn't exactly the crowd I thought was coming. It text message blew up. More people came. Okay, that's one kind of party. But then there's the other kind of party where the things that were on the outskirts aren't on the outskirts. They're at the center of the party. When you see that kind of party, run from the devil. Flee evil is what we told our kids. Two kinds of parties. It's not that much different for adults. There's two kinds of people. There are two kinds of scenes, two kinds of setting. One that is like, okay, I'm not going to be participating in all that, and some of that's going on, or maybe too much drinking here, or maybe this or that. But, and then there's the other one is like, this is celebrating ungodliness. We don't need to be a part of that. And we need to be very careful what we're doing, what we're choosing, where we're going, what we're participating in. And the question is, not is it loud, the question is, does this bring glory to God? Can I do this in faith? Can I do this with a clear conscience that this brings glory to God? That should be the rule that guides our lives. And as we interact with each other and we come to different places on that, it's not about legalism, it's about love. May God give us a spirit of love to be willing to sacrifice our own freedoms for the benefit of one another. Father God, we ask you to create that place here, that we would be a place of love, a place of grace, and kindness, and patience, and understanding that we're all in different places on this journey as we walk through life trying to understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. May we never become that church that is just cold-hearted and proud of our doctrine. And may we always be kind and gracious as we work together to help each other experience the fullness of who we are in Christ and freedom from the legalism because Christ alone sets us free. Christ alone makes us right with God. But as it relates to very different disputable matters, help us to handle all of that with grace and love and patience and kindness so that this place would be known as a place that has the love of Jesus Christ as we pursue the truth. God, we want to give you all glory this morning. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.